4: Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We're two guys with too much free time on our hands. My name's Jordan Runtog. And I'm Alex Heigel. And today we're taking a look at what's got to be my favorite song about a piece of architecture, Stairway to Heaven. Stairway turned 50 years old not too long ago in November 2021, and this song is maybe one of the most divisive topics we're going to tackle on the show, because there are some who say that it's you know one of the greatest classic rock tracks of all time, and then there are others who say that it's an overplayed and overblown mess, which is emblematic of the worst of the excesses of the early 70s record industry. I'd argue, can it be both?
5: it absolutely can i mean there's that chuck klosterman bit about every man at some point or most men anyway become a zeppelin guy and i was (laughs) for sure a zeppelin guy there are certain things that reliably like still give me chills one of them is the in a whole lot of love like after they come out of the spacey section and the other one is the stairway to heaven guitar solo i mean it's perfect they knocked it out of the park
4: it is overplayed
5: but you know but it's also perfect yeah
4: uh, we both play guitar. Was Stairway an early guitar track for you? Was that I feel like that's everyone's first song that they learned.
5: It wasn't, because my best friend uh, at the time played guitar, and he had enough of a head start on me that I couldn't play guitar. It wasn't an option for me, so I picked bass, which has defined the entire course of my life ever since, so... Thanks, Stairway. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I mean, I gotta say, I was never, I never really had my Zeppelin guy phase because I was more of a who guy. Mm. I got into them first and then when I saw Zeppelin, I was like, wait a minute, you got the the blonde front man with his chest out and the leather fringe. You've got the guitar god wizard figures kind of orchestrating it all. You've got the quiet kind of sullen bassist who's like actually secretly the MVP mm-hmm. and like a one-man orchestra who plays everything. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this like human Muppet freight train guy on the drums. Wait a minute. I know this. This is the who I've already like, I've already set my allegiance here. Those are
5: all, those are all very salient comparisons that are objectively incorrect. Um,
4: (laughs)
3: How so?
5: Well, I think the big difference is that the who started out as a garage band and gradually got better, but their reach exceeded their grasp. Jimmy Page can play guitar better than Pete Townsend with one hand. Um, Roger Daltrey is like one of the great all-time like howlers, like screamers, but he absolutely cannot sing like Robert Plant and Keith oh, Moon, agree is... To disagree. Keith Moon's an embarrassment. I mean, he's what? yeah, he's he's a terrible drummer. He's great for the band. I have this possibly apocryphal story that a drummer friend of mine told me where Keith Moon was um he'd somehow arranged to take a lesson with Philly Joe Jones, who's like one of the Greatest jazz drummers of the 20th century. Played with Miles. Played with everybody. He got in front of him for like a lesson, and Philly Joe was like, "All right, why don't you play a little?" And you know, we'll kind of go from there. I'll see how you play. And Keith Moon is like doing his Keith Moon thing, like trying to hit every symbol at (laughs) once. Like an octopus. Yeah, just like like playing
4: out with like six rows of tom toms. and And I'm sure just like.
5: mugging in an empty room for no apparent reason and, and he he gets he gets done and, and blowing Joe, up his bass drum for nobody yeah and he gets done and philly joe's like wait you're in a band like people <laughs> people pay you to play music so yeah i get that comparison i think a lot of people also make it but um i don't zeppelin is the far superior band in my opinion
4: I mean, Sorry. I I've I bled for the Who. When I was a teenager, I tried to do like a Pete Townsend windmill and just failed miserably and just absolutely sliced my hand up. I still have a scar on my finger. And I actually I was lucky enough to interview Pete Townsend. It was over the phone. And at the end of it, when it was done, I told him that story. And he was like, "Oh yeah, my hands all all just cut to rivets too. You know what? I'm, I'm coming to play a gig in New York in a couple months. Get in touch with me. We'll meet backstage and we'll we'll shake." Guard bloody hands, which was very nice of him, and we did. That was a very special moment for me. So I, I will always be a Who guy over Zeppelin. That's so great. Well, I gotta say, I've heard this song all my life, and there are still so many mysteries about it. And frankly, it makes me wonder. <laughs> oh, oh, it makes me wonder. Thank you for the for the pity laugh, Heigl. Uh But before we dive in, we should get one thing straight. Now, for listeners out there, I'm not saying this will happen, but if, if, there's a bustle in your hedgerow, please don't be alarmed. It's just the sound of Heigl and I diving into everything you didn't know about Stairway to Heaven.
5: <laughs> Door slamming sound effect. Yeah,
4: or, or it's the sound of Heigl leaving, one or the other.
5: As we frequently start these sections with, I'm going to drag out one of my most hated cliches. By 1970, Led Zeppelin were at a crossroads. (laughs) Um, They were, but the crossroads was like, you know, a touring-induced malaise. So by 1970, they've released their first three records, which are all self-titled, which is Lazy. Um, the first one is mostly reworked read stolen blues tunes and that was recorded in september and october of 1968 which is a staggering two months after the band rehearsed for the first time which i love
4: that. that's insane yeah.
5: that's released in january 69 and then led zeppelin 2 They start working on that immediately in January 69. And that's worked on up until August of that year. But during that same time, they pick up four European and three American tours. So they're they're touring and getting the material in shape. And then Led Zeppelin two is released in October 69. It takes them a year to do Led Zeppelin three. They recorded it from November 69 to August 70. And so by the time they get around to making four... In December of 1970, they're like, we're not doing this record and live thing again. They canceled all their tours to work on the record. We should also talk about the title of this record. It's referred to as Led Zeppelin four, but it's also known as Runes. Um, <laughs> do you know who designed the Runes?
4: Well, I think they each individually, every bandmate brought their own. Uh the only thing that I do know about the designs of those those runes was John Bonham's, which was apparently modeled after the logo of his favorite American beer, Ballantine.
5: Yeah. Okay, so here we go. Um Page designed his own, and because he's Paige has never told anyone about it. Jones was chosen from a book by a german typeface professor called the book of signs which is perfect for john paul jones actually bonham picked the symbol from the same book but he did pick it because it reminded him of ballantyne and plant designed his own so all right robert plant the secret graphic designer of of led zeppelin (laughs) anyway moving on the story of led zeppelin IV and Way to heaven is
4: impossible without mentioning Hedley Grange. Yes. Like so many stories involving Led Zeppelin, there is a haunted house involved and Hedley Grange is most certainly haunted, right?
5: Yeah. So they started the sessions in London, which we will also talk about, but they eventually settle at this country house in Hampshire, England by January of 71 using the Rolling Stones mobile studio, which is one of the apparently most well-used mobile
4: studios in England. It's just like an Airstream trailer, right? With like two, eight tracks in it or 16 tracks or something. Yeah, just kidding it out. Neil Young
5: used it to record my least favorite Neil Young song, A Man Needs a Maid. Um, oh, yeah. And according to England's National Heritage List, Hedley Grange was built in 1795 as a house of industry, which is the UK's euphemism for a workhouse for the poor. And according to a historian named John Owen Smith, the property was ransacked in a riot by local laborers over taxes and low wages. So... <laughs> It's definitely haunted. It's haunted by surly, poor, working-class, <laughs> rural British people. Um, and then somehow, and I've not been able to figure this out exactly how this happened, it just became a rehearsal space for the, like, landed gentry of British rock. Aside from Zeppelin, Fleetwood Mac, Bad Company, and Genesis all rehearsed there or worked on recordings there, according and this is according crazy. to the the house's official site. But despite this sterling pedigree, they never fixed the heat. <laughs> and tour manager Richard Cole, who is such a fascinating figure in Zeppelin lore, he's either like a pathological liar or has exposed 90% of this band's secrets. He claims that they were burning the house's banisters for firewood by the end of their stay there.
4: This whole, the whole Hedley Grange myth is so wonderful. I, I love this quote from Jimmy Page about why they chose it. He said, we needed the sort of facilities where we could have a cup of tea and wander around the garden and then go in and do what we had to do, which might be the most early 70s British rock star phrase I've, I've ever heard. I mean, it's just the, truly the pinnacle of the whole getting it together in the country cliche.
5: It's so British. Like the band and Bob Dylan retreated to like a tiny little house in Woodstock and Zeppelin retired to a haunted mansion. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. So we mentioned earlier that Zeppelin started these sessions in London and the plan was to record at McJagger's place, which is called Stargroves. What um, a name. Yeah. F- McJagger. But. Jimmy Page's nickname, by the way, is Lead Wallet, and he deemed it too expensive. And I have this wonderful image of Jimmy Page like strung out on heroin with like a pair of little reading glasses and the green plastic accountant's visor hunched, <laughs> hunched over like an old timey adding machine in his dragon jumpsuit, muttering, Oh, we've got to get that day rate down. Ding. Yeah. Ding. Bonzo, little- Bonzo, you've gone through ten grand worth of beer this week. <laughs>
4: I mean, little um, known fact, Jimmy Page actually invented Groupon to try to get rock <laughs> groups better rates at Mick Jagger's house.
5: Another another fun fact about Stargroves is they went back to Stargroves, actually. So in 72, they record stuff for Houses of the Holy, Physical Graffiti, and then also Coda there. So they must have liked it enough to come back
4: to it. Maybe they bargained Jagger down on the day rate. <laughs> A lot of bands, I think the Who did some of Who's Next there, or at least like early sessions for it. The Who did Deep Purple, Bob Marley,
5: I guess because of the Island Records connection, Iron Maiden, which is amazing. So the last thing about Stargirls that's interesting is that the house's exterior and its grounds were used to film uh, Doctor Who specials in the 70s. <laughs> I, could, I could see Mick just being tickled
4: by that. I, I know, can imagine yeah. him being a huge Doctor Who fan.
5: So the other big figure in the Zeppelin 4 recording is Andy Johns, who is the brother of Glenn Johns, who is a personal favorite of yours. What a guy. Yeah. And Andy Johns, who had just done Sticky Fingers, engineered for, along with Ian Stewart, who is another, like, peripheral Stones figure. Why don't you walk us through a Brief Reader's Digest version of Ian Stewart's life?
4: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Ian Stewart was one of the founding members of the Rolling Stones in 63, 64. And uh, and there were six Rolling Stones. And it's really crazy when you look at pictures of them back then, because it's like... It it looks like this guy was photoshopped in because he was quite a bit older than the other members of the Stones. And he just he just looks different. Like he's kind of like bigger, like burlier, got this big square jaw. He looks kind of like a dock worker or a factory worker. And then you've got these slight rock and roll pixie guys like Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. The elves and their orc protector. And so when the Stones hired their first manager, Andrew Oldham, to kind of help them break on through and reach Beatle level, because Andrew had worked with Beatles manager Brian Epstein, uh, he basically said, you know what, six members of a band is, is kind of pushing it. Like, you know, the Beatles are four, Kinks are four, the Who are four, Dave Clark five, eh, kind of <laughs> pushing it. Five, five will let slide, but six is way too many, and Ian Stewart, uh, who was the pianist, it's just one of those things doesn't look like the other. So they, it's sort of sad. They sidelined this guy who was uh, kind of the heart and soul of the group in the early days and made him kind of their minder, right? Like he was the driver and kind of moved stuff. He was a big guy. So I think he he was good at like moving the big heavy bass amps and stuff. And he still played piano uh, sometimes in the studio and on stage too. But he famously refused to play minor chords i love it what dedication to his craft um <laughs> he just would lift his hands off the keys whenever they try to get him to play yeah but he's also
5: he's like a peripheral zeppelin figure as well because he sticks I didn't around realize that. yeah and when they're recording physical graffiti there's this tune called boogie with stew which was basically he just right. like showed up and started banging on the piano and they all just improvised a song around it so so ian stewart is also there at Headley grange And anyway, getting back to Andy Johns, who's given this great interview to a British journalist named Michael O'Dell, and he says Mick Jagger had offered us his baronial mansion, Stargroves, for a thousand pounds a week,
4: and Jimmy wouldn't pay it. (laughs) But you get what you pay for, because, you know, as you mentioned, Kedley Grange was kind of shoddy. I mean, John Paul Jones absolutely loathed the place he later said in pretty blunt terms i hated Headley crange the huge main room sounded great but the place itself was awful cold and damp the fact i couldn't wait to get out of there probably had something to do with the speed with which the album was made um and andy johns kind of confirmed this he said that the place was quote somewhat seedy with stuffing coming out of the couch and springs coming out of the bed but uh andy apparently didn't mind it because he was having an affair with the cook at the time that
5: came out of his day rate.
4: In a haunted house. Yeah. So they arrive at Hedley Grange, and as, as JPJ mentioned, the sessions there went pretty quickly because they arrived with a lot of songs and songs in progress all ready to go. And Page arrived with sort of the separate chunks of what would become Stairway to Heaven. And he later said that he wrote this song or started writing this song with the intention of replacing Dazed and Confused as Led Zeppelin's like kind of lengthy epic show closer song and according to the band's lore which is extremely dense and uh and canon really Mm -hmm. page wrote the fragments of what would become stairway to heaven while staying with robert plant at a 250 year old cottage in wales called bronner ire is that Mm -hmm.
5: We I don't, it's Welsh. Close it's enough. Oh, yeah, just,
4: all Welsh locations look like they were written by cats walking on laptop keyboards. <laughs> so I mean, uh, uh, let's just say Bronnerire, and it's this cottage in the in the Welsh countryside, just like it looks like something out of Tolkien, like mist coming up off the heathers. You know, no running water, or heat, just a big stone building, and it's really become indelibly linked with Stairway to Heaven as this like kind of mystical place where the song was born. But for me, I think it's kind of cute because I guess Robert. Planner Used to stay at this place with his family as a kid. So, like, I'm from New England. So, to me, it's like someone saying, "Hey, want to go down the Cape? Like, my parents have a place. It'll be great." Uh, so, it kind of makes this whole story a little less mythic to me. It makes it kind of almost humanizes it more. It's but, the plot um, of
5: it's the plot of Withnail and I. <laughs> they just <laughs> go right, to like I a mean, rural yeah. a rural cottage and hijinks ensue.
4: So, it's become like kind of famously linked with this song. But weirdly, during the copyright infringement case for Stairway, which we'll talk a lot about shortly. Page said on the stand that he had written it at Headley Grange, which for a lot of people destroyed a big part of the song's myth. It's like, you know, Paul McCartney, after all these years of saying that he dreamed yesterday, you know, ended up just saying, oh yeah, no, it was written. It's become such a huge part of the song's story to hear that uh, it wasn't written at this cottage was uh, kind of heartbreaking to some fans. It's weird. I don't know why in the midst of a plagiarism case where you wrote the song would really matter or be relevant. But um, yeah. But anyway, of course, while we're on the subject of the plagiarism case, we should just dive in there. Yeah. So
5: basically the big elephant in the room with Stairway is this LA prog rock band called Spirit. And they were on a tour with Zeppelin. Zeppelin opened for them on their first American tour, I believe. And Spirit, as was the fashion at the time, had an instrumental tune called Taurus. And the <laughs> intro to that song
4: does sound a good bit like
5: Stairway. It's um, like the acoustic like intro to, yeah. to Stairway,
4: yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I don't want to dwell on the legalese of all this. But you know how like during the Oscars, they sometimes give awards to actors for not so great performances, like almost as an apology for not (laughs) giving it to them in years past. I, I almost feel like that should have happened with the Stairway lawsuit just to avenge the years and years of Led Zeppelin getting away with pretty egregious rip-offs. I mean, we've all accepted that Whole lot of Love is a direct rip of You Need Love by Willie Dixon, which was popularized by Muddy Waters in the early 60s. Uh, I think Dixon sued in 1985 and they settled out of court. And I think he's listed Mm -hmm. as a co-writer now. Uh, Lemon Song is Howlin' Wolf's Killing Floor and he got a belated co-writer credit on that. There's this great Rolling Stone article written a few years back by Gavin Edwards that goes deep deeper on all this and uh there are just so many examples of Page like, crediting himself on traditional tracks. Like I think In My Time of Dying for instance, it's just like a traditional song that he stuck his name on. And I think my favorite example of this is Led Zeppelin. They took a song by American folk singer Annie Bredin, which they mistakenly believed to be traditional <laughs> and, and just took it and they made Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You from it. And it, they just, I don't know why they assumed it was traditional, but for years it was until the 80s when this woman realized that Led Zeppelin had done one of her songs you can
5: sort of give him the benefit of the doubt and being like
4: well we didn't have wikipedia
5: back then we didn't know this we didn't know that but that's true i guess you know page was also kind of cued into the british folk scene at the time with like bert janch and those guys so he probably was like hearing a lot of traditional tunes it's not necessarily beyond the pale for him to hear something and be like Oh, that's probably in the public domain, but the blues stuff is so egregious. Yeah. I think when they asked him about it, he said some, he says something remarkably callous, like, well, that's the name of the game. <laughs>
4: yeah. My favorite example of all this is about the song Dazed and Confused, which was written and performed by a singer called Jake Holmes. Like the, the title of the song was Dazed and Confused, and the melody is basically identical to the Led Zeppelin song, and it's... A pretty distinctive melody. like that's, that's... And, and the bass line. Oh, and the bass line, too. And Page claimed that he had never heard the song, which is pretty weird considering that Jake Holmes opened for Jimmy Page's pre-Led Zeppelin band, The Yardbirds, in 1967, which is when his song, <laughs> Confused, came out. And for some reason that's totally beyond me, this guy Jake Holmes didn't press charges for decades. He's quoted as saying, what the hell, let him have it. Which is some serious money. I mean, yeah. I guess he finally filed suit in like 2010, and now he's credited on the song, but not as a co writer. <laughs> the credit on Dazed and Confused by Led Zeppelin reads written by Page, inspired by Jake Holmes.
5: Yeah, there's even like a Wikipedia page called List of Blood Zeppelin Songs Written or Inspired by Others. So like that gives you an idea of the extent of this. Um, my favorite bit about the Jake Holmes song comes from uh, this Alex Ross piece called "Chacona, Lamenta, and Walking Blues, which traces this idea of a descending bass line all the way back to like 1695. And I just want to read you this line. Holmes's song is anchored in consecutive chromatic descents. They were the work of an itinerant bass guitarist named Rick Randall, who Holmes later described as absolutely stark raving mad, and who was last reported living in Utah with a witch.
4: Anytime there's there's a last-known whereabouts entry in somebody's like bio, that's that's when you know that person has a life well-lived.
5: Or just the phrase itinerant bass guitarist. Like... <laughs> Just wondering. Living with a witch. Yeah.
4: I don't know. You're a songwriter, I'm not. You are also a cold-hearted cynic, and I am not. Uh I know that music builds on what came before it. I think we can all agree that like cashing in on these blues old timers who've been ripped off left, right, and center is wrong. But it gets murkier with something like Stairway. Like the intro does indeed sound like that Taurus song. But that Taurus song sounds similar to so much that came before it too. There was a um, a, a Canadian—I forget if it was a documentary or like a news broadcast—where they had a musicologist on, and he drew comparisons from the beginning of Taurus, which is the song that Stairway supposedly ripped off, and the 1927 song Blue Skies, you know, Blue Skies mm-hmm. it on me. 1937's My Funny Valentine, which is an mm-hmm. old jazz standard, and even the song Feelings by Morris <laughs> Albert. I mean, there are some musicologists that take it all the way back to Bach as like Mm -hmm. the antecedent for the stairway intro, which, you know, at its core is a held minor chord and a descending bass line. So, you know, as I was saying earlier, the big argument that you always hear in regard to the stairway controversy is everybody borrows. It's what you do with that to make it your own. And beyond the intro to stairway, I mean, it's pretty obvious that Page took stairway to heaven in a wholly different direction. True. So, I mean, he definitely did make it his own. So I suppose there's something that could be said for that
5: yeah i mean just the the the, apparently during cross-examination or whatever the lawyer even played jimmy page chim chimery from mary poppins and (laughs) tried to get him to cop to being influenced by that this court case just got mean um it's funny because this guy who wrote the spirit song taurus randy california which you'll tell us about randy in a minute he didn't really care about this for a long time he wrote in a set of 1996 liner notes for a spirit set or box set i guess or reissued he was like oh this kind of sounds like stairway but it wasn't even until 2014 that a bassist for the band whose name is mark andes which is the second geographical name of this band he filed the suit in 2014 and this wasn't settled
4: until march of 2020 in san francisco and they ruled against spirit and Randy California was dead by this point, too. So during his lifetime, he he may have noted that there were similarities, but he never took it to court or anything. I got to say, this guy, Randy California, had a pretty crazy life. I want to go off on a little bit of a tangent on him. Yeah, Randy California lightning round. Right. <laughs> He was born Randy Wolf, which is also a pretty amazing name, yeah. and he got to start playing in Jimi Hendrix's pre-experience band, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames, and he was just like a teenager, and it was Hendrix who gave him the name Randy California to distinguish him from another Randy in the band that he called Randy Texas. Um,
5: Dig, baby, I'm going to call you Randy California. <laughs> I'm
4: going to call you good. Randy Texas. they're like, okay. I don't know why he called him Randy California, because he's not, I mean, I thought he grew up in New York, so maybe he just thought he had like a California vibe, maybe he Mm. just had like pre-hippie long hair stuff, because this would have been like 65, 66. Randy California, his neighbor around this time, was Walter Becker, the future Steely Dan co-founder. Hell yeah. Which is so great. They apparently lived next to each other in an apartment in uh, Forest Hills, Queens, and Randy California gave Walter Becker blues guitar lessons for a time, so we can thank him for some of those great Steely Dan licks, too. And this is my favorite part. Apparently, Walter Becker, later of Steely Dan, Randy California, briefly played in a short-lived band called Tangerine Puppets with the future Tommy Ramone and Johnny Ramone. Isn't that not, I mean, it's not <laughs> clear if they were all in the band at the same time or if it was just the same band that they filtered through, but I, I like to believe that they're all, all together. To be a fly on that wall. I can't think of two more diametrically opposed 70s bands than the Ramones and, and Steely, Steely Dan Yeah. in terms of their approach to... Everything. Songwriting, performing, <laughs> yeah, everything really. So that's that's pretty amazing. So Randy California ended up moving to California. He fulfilled his de- the destiny of his name, founded the band Spirit with his stepfather, which I think is kind of a a, a, a weird way to bond, but. Mm-hmm still cool uh he wrote their biggest hit nature's way which is a great song if you don't know it it's like got this very doomy late 60s acoustic kind of like that zagger and evans in the year 25 25 Mm -hmm. type of vibe to it and yeah like i said randy never made a move against zeppelin in his lifetime but he died in 1997 at the age of 45 while rescuing his 12 year old son from a riptide off the coast of hawaii what a life what a way to go yeah right and what a lot of life i mean so regardless of what the courts ruled i'd like to give a tip of the hat to old randy right now cuz that is that is a life that is a full life a rich yeah. life
5: if you'd like to add anything to this conversation please tweet at us using the hashtag randycalifornia um
4: <laughs> it's also
5: impossible to talk about led zeppelin and specifically stairway without getting into plants lyrics which he has claimed that he wrote most of for Stairway in a single sitting, sitting at Grange, listening to the fragments of the song. And he said it was like automatic writing. Like he was channeling these lines.
4: Yeah. Or maybe that's his way of just denying responsibility for the lyrics that he would later come to hate. I mean, (laughs) we'll, we'll, we'll get more into Robert Plant's fierce, burning hatred of this song later, but um, he later would come to find them naive and embarrassing. But it's definitely worth noting that the band printed the lyrics to Stairway, and only Stairway, uh, on the gatefold sleeve of Led Zeppelin 4, which was, I think, the first time they'd ever printed their lyrics mm-hmm. on an album cover. So clearly they must have been proud of this at the time. Uh, and Page would later say that he knew it was special.
5: We also can't talk about Story to Heaven without talking about all the ad-libs that Plant would do when they were playing (laughs) it live. Um, The Song Remains the Same is a classic essential bit of both documentary making and 70s cheese. Um, (laughs) And he has some of his favorite ad-libs like uh, does any does anyone remember Laughter? <laughs> after uh, After the Hills with Echo with Laughter. And the producer of that film, Kevin Shirley, told Mick Wall in a book called When Giants Walk the Earth that Plant asked him to remove that when they reissued it because I guess he was embarrassed and they said no, it stays in the film.
2: <laughs> and he's, them,
5: he's, he's, he's he's you know, he's talked a lot about the song. We'll get more into that later, as you said, but he called it a nice, pleasant, well-meaning, naive little song very English, to Rolling Stone in 1998. of oh, which is very true. It's, yeah, it's very true. And in The Hammer of the Gods, it's mentioned that he'd been reading this book, this occult book called The Magic Arts in Celtic Britain by a Scottish folklorist named Lewis Spence before he wrote the lyrics. So there's a good bit of that in there.
4: Oh, Hammer of the Gods, by the way, is like the like the err text for mm-hmm. led zeppelin like so many myths can be traced to that book i don't actually know how truthful it is yeah it's widely contested book and yeah he's
5: also such an avowed tolkien fan there's like gollum is in on. they have a song called the battle of evermore another one of his onstage ad libs is just yelling out strider which is the name <laughs> of his dog and the part famously played by vigo Mort- mortensen in the films yeah you can hear him on stage just going
4: strider I mean, is he calling out to the character or to his dog? Or, up for debate, his dog. It's definitely the dog. I mean, trying to get into Robert Plant's head is kind of a fool's errand, and nowhere is this more apparent than trying to determine what he means in the lyrics to Stairway to Heaven. I mean... I don't think even he knows. I think there's a quote that he said in recent years where he said that the power of the song lies in its abstraction. And he would go on to say, depending on what time of day it is, I still interpret the song in a different way. And I wrote the lyrics. (laughs) What do you think it's about, Heigl? I think it's about them being really, really
5: high. I mean, you have to take all of these guys, everything they say with a grain of salt, because Page is his own greatest hagiographer. I mean, he will only talk to you on his terms about what he wants to talk about so like everything these guys have said is practically you have to think about it in terms of their own ego and the fact that they were like drunk and high for a
4: very long time very true but They could still get the job done no matter what substances were coursing through their their veins. Mm -hmm. It took Robert Plant just two takes to nail his vocal take. I think there was like a punch in there where they fixed a line or two, but he got it really quickly. There's also, I didn't realize this, a long-lost guitar outro to Stairway to Heaven. Jimmy Page had originally written a guitar part for the very end, but he ultimately decided to leave it with Robert Plant's voice a cappella. But somewhere even just in the recesses of pagey's almost certainly terrifying subconscious there is a missing guitar part to stairway to heaven i'd like to hear that knowing jimmy
5: page it's going to be remastered and released on a on a new reissue of this song like as we speak um but let's move to a different member of led zeppelin my favorite member of led zeppelin the band's mvp (laughs) john paul jones Going back into the, again, the genesis of this song, early as April 70, Page told NME that he had an idea for a really long track on the next album, something new with the organ and acoustic guitar building and building to the electric thing. And that's where John Paul Jones comes in, because we mentioned Page comes in with a bunch of taped fragments dating back to their first attempt at the song, which happened in Island Studios in December of 1970. So they pick it up again at Grange the following month, and John Paul Jones is there, and you know he plays a ton of stuff he plays mandolin he plays keyboards he's a, one of the best bass players and he also wrote a bunch of songs so he's there with paige and he's uh, helping him arrange the song he's working on uh, the piano and the bass guitar and the bass recorder which is uh, presumably just a longer and deeper version of the same plastic recorder <laughs>
4: we all got in <laughs> elementary school like a big didgeridoo or something. Oh, I love... That was my first instrument. My first ever musical performance, I played uh, a French folk song called Claire de la Lune at a school assembly in third grade. So Aww. I, I love it. Did you play the recorder? Uh, briefly. I dabbled. <laughs> well, John Paul Jones more than dabbles. Apparently he played not only the bass recorder, but a soprano and a tenor recorder. There are three... Different recorders. I, just, on this I track. imagine
5: him like John Popper, like he has like the bandolier <laughs> with different different recorders like strapped to it, and he's just pulling them out at different times.
4: We're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more too much information in just a moment.
6: Hey girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of the girlfriends. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list.
3: Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Someone a little less known for his versatility in Led Zeppelin is John Bonham, who is famously just more of a wrecking ball than an embroidery (laughs) needle when it comes to playing on these songs. My favorite bit about John Bonham in the studio is there's two one is he couldn't get the mixed meter section in Black Dog right because part of that song is in five and instead of playing in five he just played in four the whole time and it ends up working out because of the way that it overlaps but he was just like no I'm not doing that (laughs) (laughs) And then the other one is uh, the song Four Sticks, where he it's called that because he was so frustrated with trying to get that song that he basically literally grabbed two drumsticks in each hand and just started bashing away at it it's incredible <laughs> and in Stairway apparently he has trouble getting the the rhythms that transition into the guitar solo section da-da, 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 da-da.
4: well I mean probably part of the reason that he probably had a hard time nailing that part was that he was just waiting for something like four minutes before he comes in which is a trick that Jimmy Page had used on a couple Led Zeppelin songs on stuff like Ramble On mm-hmm. to great effect I mean you just you're listening for so long that you think a song is gonna just proceed in a certain sonic space and then he comes in like a freight train out of nowhere and just completely kicks it into a totally new space so it's a cool approach but i think on stairway he's just sitting there for something like four minutes and there are all sorts of memes about what john bonham is doing during the quiet part of stairway i think there's even a buzzfeed list of here's everything john bonham's doing during the quiet part of stairway uh grow and shave off one full cycle of his mighty beard it's one of my favorites. Sit in on drums for another band at a nearby venue after knocking their drummer out with a single punch. <laughs> probably. That was probably true. most there. yeah. Yeah, that's on the nose. And I think my favorite is shift his molecular vibration over to an alternate universe where the band's already up to the drum part of Stairway, perform it there and then come back to his initial time period just in time to play it there as well
5: yeah john bonham is so fascinating because he is like one of the most influential if not the like just textbook rock and roll drummers and he was such an asshole he was such a tremendous asshole he he saw clockwork orange and rather than being horrified by the dystopian nature of it, thought those guys were cool and started wearing a droog costume on stage. Is
4: that where the boiler suit came from? I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. Whoa. And
5: he he also thought it was like hilarious to um, when people were. I was waiting
4: for this. Yeah. yeah.
5: When people were, you know, passing cocaine around, he would give someone a bump of heroin and tell them it was cocaine and then like <laughs> laugh uproariously about it. So great drummer <laughs> person. <laughs>
4: I can't believe you're not as into Keith Moon, though. I mean, his pranks were or were... but it's it comes down
5: to the swing, man. I mean, these guys were jazz dorks. Like he and oh, Bill yeah. Ward from Sabbath were both really into like Gene Krupa, and they just have that swing to the rhythm that I don't hear in the Who, and you don't hear in a lot of stuff.
4: Keith was a big Krupa. I guess he was more of a buddy rich guy in terms of his flamboyant just performance style. That definitely tracks. I've been in three
5: Zeppelin cover bands, and I will what? say Yeah, yeah. And I will say that we've had, we had three different drummers for it. And that kind of drunken swing is such a tough thing to nail. And it's, it really gave me an appreciation for how good of a drummer he
4: actually is. What did you play in these bands? Were you, were you JPJ? Hell yeah, I was. (laughs) Oh man, that's awesome. I want to see some of that. Anyway, back to the rhythm of the song. Uh, Jimmy Page makes a big deal about the fact that the tempo of Stairway speeds up gradually, which he said breaks the cardinal rule of pop music. And he would know because he spent most of the early 60s as the most in-demand session guitarist in existence. He's played on Everybody's songs Also, I mean Everybody from The Who The Kinks Petula Clark I mean, he's played on A a million different Pop hits in the mid-60s So Mm -hmm. it kind of instilled in him This almost mathematical sense Of like What makes a good pop song What will sound good On the radio Like that's A lot of how he approaches This stuff Was really ingrained From this journeyman period And he found That this approach Of having this tempo speed up Was something that was Really unique and cool This approach is really Only found in classical music He has a great quote about it The idea was to have a song which would actually change as we went through it. Layers would unfold with the instruments as they were coming in, and the drums would be coming in later as the song progressed. And there'd be this movement to the guitar solo that took you through, and the momentum would unfold as the pace accelerated. I knew something like that wasn't necessarily the done thing in popular music, it was more done in classical music. So that's Mm -hmm. an interesting part of the song. He's wrong about that. There's all kinds of songs that do that <laughs> like I mean there's Charlie Watts
5: is famous for speeding up Rolling Stone songs as they go. If you like tap out the start and finish of a bunch of stone songs, it's a lot of variants, but sometimes that's what the song needs. Moving on to another famous part, probably the most famous part of this song is the guitar solo baby, and it's oh, yeah. really funny because you think of the iconic images of Jimmy Page, the dragon suit, which, which If you have anything to add to this episode, please tweet at us using the hashtag Jimmy Page's dragon suit. Um, You think of the, the classic Jimmy Page silhouette and it's Gibson's. It's that beautiful Les Paul. It's the enormous double neck SG, but he actually recorded this solo on a 59 Fender Telecaster, baby, with quite the pedigree, Jordan.
4: Oh yeah, that was uh, that was his dragon telly, right? That he painted himself in this Hideous. crazy psychedelic. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a bold choice. Hideous. Uh, but uh, yeah, this guitar was given to him by Jeff Beck, you know, another fellow guitar god, because. Um, Page got him a spot in the Yardbirds. And to sort of thank him for his new gig in this band, Jimmy Page tells a story about he was just at his house, and all of a sudden this American sports car pulled up out front, which in the mid-60s was kind of a rare thing in England. And Jeff Beck got out and handed him this vintage Telecaster, and this belongs to you now. And it's sweet. I mean, you have all those stories about guitarists giving other guitarists their prized instrument. It's always like a, a real special thing between musicians. So he cherished this guitar. Um, Where did Paige's other Les Paul come from? His famous Les Paul, the one that's like the real beautiful, I think it was, what was it, 59? Yeah, it was a 59 Les Paul. He bought that off of Joe Walsh. Later of the Eagles, um, this was probably, I imagine... Zeppelin was probably touring through the Midwest, and maybe the James Gang, which is yeah. Joe Walsh's early band, was probably opening for him or something. Actually, I'm not totally sure how they hooked up, but uh, yeah, he bought that 59 Les Paul off of Joe Walsh, and that became his main instrument in, like, 70, 71, and he left his famous Dragon Telly that he played, the Stairway to Heaven solo, at home and he went out on tour, And a friend of his, apparently trying to be nice uh, while he was away on tour, went and took it in and got the paint removed and scrubbed it down and got it all refinished. And Jimmy Page, he told this story to Guitar World in 1998. He said he got back from tour and said, my friend said, I've got a present for you. He thought he'd done me a real favor. As you can guess, I wasn't real happy about that. His paint job totally screwed up the sound and the wiring, so only the neck pickup worked. I salvaged the neck and put it on my brown Tele string bender that I used in The Firm. This is kind of not-so-great band after Led Zeppelin. <laughs> As for the body, it will never be seen again, which breaks my heart. It's such a historic guitar. I mean, where's that? we need Indiana Jones on a soundboard right now. <laughs> it belongs, it belongs in a museum. To the museum.
5: So... Coming down to the actual nitty-gritty of the solo, Page told Classic Rock in June 2021 that he took, quote, a couple of cracks at the solo. But Andy Johns told Music Radar that it was more like seven or eight over the course of a half an hour. They got into a tiff because I guess they were like, oh, that's not quite it, you know, like, maybe give it another crack. And things got really tense in the control room. And then he says that Jimmy Page then went in and, and ripped it out. But there's another there's another version of this that he did two or three takes of the solo and then picked the best one. So,
4: yeah. Paige and Andy Johns really didn't seem to get along very well. Uh, Andy Johns would describe the solo sessions in later years as, as he said, really tense. And uh, he said to Jimmy, he's like, you're making me paranoid. And Paige snapped back, you're making me paranoid. And in John's words, it was just a circle of paranoia. <laughs>
5: Cocaine, baby.
4: <gasps> oh, True. Yeah, Andy Johns really is kind of seen as, like, the fall guy for so many of these sessions. Like, didn't he screw up the mixing initially or had some role in, like, messing up the, the early version of the mix for Led Zeppelin Four? They
5: took a crack at mixing it at Sunset Studios in L.A., but it universally hated the results, apparently, including Johns. And the only thing they kept on there is when the levee breaks from that session. And then they subsequently remixed everything else over the summer at Island in London. <laughs> I mean
4: not not to speak ill of the dead because Andy Johns died a few years back but mm-hmm. he's sort of portrayed as this like Benny Hill type figure like <laughs> sex fiend in the Led Zeppelin four story. Uh, in interviews, he's always talking about like having sex with the cook at Headley Grange. and he said he was excited to get to California to mix the album because he had two girlfriends there. and presumably in his haste to get to them, he left two of the tapes of the Led Zeppelin's work in progress on the plane. And so he's as he's like desperately like running through the airport trying to get back onto the plane before it takes off and goes back to England, an earthquake hits LA. <laughs> And, like, the airport starts shaking. Just bad omens all around.
5: That's one of the reasons they kicked Little George out of Little Feet, is that they were working on a record, and he was so messed up, he left a bunch of master tapes on a train.
4: <laughs> oh, God. I mean, yeah, it's pretty bad. Um, So, he really becomes the fall guy for this mixing incident in particular. And Jimmy Page once seethed, basically, Andy John should be hung, drawn, and quartered for the fiascos he played. Ouch. Um. Yeah, that's pretty brutal. And after this, he did not work with the band again. (laughs) But uh, it did not hurt his career much because he worked on the Stones' "Exile on Main Street," Television's "Marquee Moon," and I didn't realize this Van Halen's for "Unlawful Carnal." That's a hard album title to say. Yeah, it is. Van Halen's for "Unlawful Carnal Knowledge." There we go.
5: Which that Uh, record for me gets a (laughs) review. Um, I love. But it's old. Yeah, I love this idea of Andy Johns mixing because Exile and Main Street was also done in like a big country manor situation. So I love this idea of Andy Johns just like chasing women through the halls of these mansions with of like, haunted, just yeah. like at like one and a half speed with Yaffe Sax playing in the background.
0: Like, <laughs>
5: anyway, once they get done with mixing, they turn it into Atlantic, and Atlantic is saying, "You people are insane, truly." cut this song down which is i guess they would have had a precedence for this because dazed and confused is 10 minutes long but i guess at this point the band is a more of a known quantity and so the record label has more of a vested interest in dealing with the singles and they say you want to cut it down and um everyone in the band refused and so did their manager peter grant who's another famous figure in this band's history is he the ex-wrestler he's like the strong arm guy he's I, like sort I, of the I, suge knight of the classic rock world if <laughs> I'm remembering correctly like he, yeah
4: no that's fair
5: yeah. Peter Grant worked variously as a stagehand, bouncer, and wrestler before getting into management. All of which is to say, if that man comes into your office and says, no, he is not changing on that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it didn't hurt the album anyway, because once 4 comes out, it stays on the charts for 90 weeks in the U.S., which is almost two years straight.
4: I mean, you could argue that it sold like that because Stairway to Heaven wasn't released as a single. I think a lot of the thinking behind it was if we don't put this out as a single, people will be forced to buy the album and the album will sell like a single. And in those days, singles sold a ridiculous amount. It's also arguably like a perfect record. There's no filler on that record you know. Yeah, oh, totally, yeah. It sold almost 30 million copies worldwide, making it the 12th best-selling record globally. Below what? Below the Grease soundtrack, but above Michael Jackson's Bad. So that's not bad. That's quite a sandwich. The only place that Starway to Heaven was ever released as a single, and I really don't understand why this was, was in the Philippines. I guess that's the only place in the world, but go figure. But in in the UK and the US, the closest it ever came to becoming a, you know, quote, hit, charts song was in 2007 when uh, it first became possible to download led zeppelin songs stairway belatedly hit i think number 30 in the billboard hot digital charts so it, it eventually did chart some what 35 years later something that must like have that. been nice for them yeah i'm sure yeah <laughs> a nice little moment i'm sure they they needed another plaque in their <laughs> baronial mansion exactly um, I just, I love when bands won't go along with even the most basic promotional efforts. It just cracks me up. Like, you know, we were talking about the title of Led Zeppelin 4. Technically, the album is untitled because Jimmy Page was still pissed about all the negative press coverage for their last album. And just the ongoing accusations that Led Zeppelin were just hype. So he told Atlantic that there would be no title for the album, no band name would be printed on the album, and no band photo would be on the cover. And this was so outrageous that Atlantic Records first thought that this was a practical joke. And then Page came ambling into their office with manager-slash-ex-wrestler Peter Grant. And he came to talk to them in person, and management realized that Page was Dead serious. He apparently hissed, listen, this record would shift units if we put it in a brown paper bag. And considering the fact that the band had been responsible for 20% of Atlantic sales that year, They got their way, but this was basically their way of protesting the hype. Like, okay, you know, if we're just hype, we won't even have our picture on it, we won't have our name on it, we won't even title the album. We're nothing. Just take it or leave it. Project your own, whatever you want onto this. Like, just call us anything, but we're not hype. Jimmy Page is one of the most fascinating people because he's
5: got this tremendous rock band that he, and that's not a diss. He's one of the most dick forward bands, and that's what makes them so good. (laughs) But he's also one of the most fragile not accommodating people. This Chuck Klosterman interview, who, as we mentioned, is a huge Zeppelin fan, this in GQ, you know, this was in 2014. I didn't know Oh, it's that. good. It's it's called Jimmy Page and the Grouses of the Holy because this interview what happened <laughs> over the course of two days and it's just, there's so many questions in here where Jimmy Page is like, I'm not going to answer that. I'm not going to talk about that. And he says like the only time he comes alive is when he starts asking him about like the minutiae of the recording or the music. So... But I guess he's always been like that. So, oh, yeah. Okay. So, and despite a song that was initially pitched as like the new finale of their live show, it had a really inauspicious debut. It happened live in Belfast in, uh, or Belfast in March 1971, eight months before it was released. And John Paul Jones remembers it as. He just says, they were all bored to tears, waiting to hear something they knew. Fair. It's an eight minute song that you don't know. It's true.
4: And some context to Belfast at the time. Yeah, it was also inauspicious because this was right in the middle of the Troubles or the war in Northern Ireland between the native Irish Catholics and British Mm -hmm. rule. I mean, Belfast was a war zone. There was rioting just down the street from the show and the streets were literally glowing red from a gas tanker that someone had hijacked and blew up just down the road from the show. I mean, not to mention, I'm sure there were like Molotov cocktail fires in every garbage can on the street. And a lot of the bands at this time were really wary of playing in Northern Ireland. I think someone was actually killed the same day that they premiered Stairway to Heaven in Belfast. So, I mean, maybe they weren't bored to tears. Maybe they were just terrified. (laughs) <laughs> it's also probably true
5: Stephen davis says in hammer of the gods that the song didn't really pick up until 1973 after they've been like road testing it for two years and then it quickly becomes a staple of the live show it almost never leaves their set and trust me you can find every led zeppelin set ever played online yes you can. um and it becomes their closer by 75
4: and according to band legend which is unusually dense and unshakable when it comes to Led Zeppelin. (laughs) The longest version of Stairway that they ever played happened to be the last time that the original foursome ever played together, which, you know, ooh. I haven't actually checked the the running times on every Led Zeppelin bootleg in existence, (laughs) but um, this was supposedly, this was at a gig in Berlin on July 7th, 1980, and they stretched Stairway to 15 minutes, and uh, John Bonham died a few months later on September 25th, 1980 of asphyxiation due to vomit from excessive alcohol consumption on this day bonzo famously had four quadruple vodka screwdrivers with breakfast so the equivalent of 16 shots and he continued to drink heavily throughout the day An inquest determined that he had the equivalent of 40 shots over the course of 24 hours uh, which is insane bad Yeah, Rolling Stone had reported that he'd recently overcome a heroin addiction, and uh, you often find that people struggling with addictions switch out one substance for another, so it could have led to his increased alcohol intake but yeah he died on september 25th 1980 and there were rumors that led zeppelin would carry on kind of as the who had when keith moon died in 1978 but uh, within a few months the surviving members issued a statement that they were breaking up they said uh we wish it to be known that the loss of our dear friend and the deep respect we have for his family together with the sense of undivided harmony felt by ourselves and our manager have led us to decide that we could not continue as we were uh Bonham had been in rough shape, like just days before what would be the band's final show in Berlin. He collapsed three songs into a gig at Nuremberg and had to be rushed to the hospital. And the band, in one of th- the great moments of PR spin, <laughs> claimed that John Bonham had merely overeaten before a gig.
5: That's and that second, was why. That's the second Lowell George connection I can make, because Lowell George supposedly died after like eating an entire pizza to himself on his tour bus
4: yes and wasn't his last album called like thanks i'll eat it yep. here yep yeah I don't know, i've heard that too actually you know what's really funny i'm just thinking this now but led zeppelin
5: loved little feet like there's really a, yeah there's an interview with robert plant where he's like slagging off american bands he's like i don't think very, very very many american bands are doing things that are interesting except for and he calls them i think the little feet but yeah they <laughs> and i think jimmy page has also talked about loving little george's uh, slide playing that scans i can see that mm-hmm. But getting into happier topics, <laughs> there's a Zeppelin biographer named Charles R. Cross who posits that the success of Stairway has to do with its runtime. There's obviously no way to quantify this unless you talk to hundreds of DJs from the 70s. But Cross claims that hundreds of DJs accidentally made Stairway a hit because its runtime happens to be the perfect amount of time to smoke a cigarette. <laughs> He says, if it had been a minute shorter, you couldn't have smoked a full cigarette. If it had been a minute longer, it would have been too long. But, like, as a former smoker, I'm not sure if I buy that because there's cigarettes that last differently, like Pall Malls and American Spirits over the really long lasting cigarettes. So maybe that's when you do the live version.
4: I thought it was just like bathroom breaks too. That and like Hey Jude, just program hey Jude, those two. And uh, then Bohemian got... Rhapsody. And yeah, yep. hit, the, uh, hit the John. So DJs were a big fan of Stairway to Heavy. You know what else was a big fan? Who else? First son or first kid, Steve Ford, Gerald Ford's son. Gerald Ford took over the the presidency in the summer of 74 after Nixon resigned. And... (laughs) 18-year-old Steve Ford, Gerald's son, took advantage of the family's new digs by going up to the roof of the White House with a friend, lugged his stereo up there. I really hope it was an 8-track. It must have been 8-track. Mm. And just blasted music, including Stairway to Heaven, so loud that it could be heard across the street. <laughs> it's just... I mean, your dad's just become president. What do you do? You yeah. lug your 8-track player, maybe a reel-to-reel tape machine. That's kind mm-hmm. of even funnier. Up to the roof of the White House and just Blast Led Zeppelin 4. I like that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's kind of a famous moment. It was referenced in House of Cards. Post 9 11, that whole roof area, I think, was turned into like a sniper's nest for security purposes. So you can't go up there now and play, uh, you know, LMFAO or whatever it is that the kids are listening to these (laughs) days. That reference is woefully out of (laughs) date. Yeah, you can't get up there and blast Gautier. Or, or fun keep uh, keep
5: going your pop music references are like seven years out of date <laughs> <I'm doing laughs> what else purpose who else do you, who else? oh okay sorry I never know I really the, the,
4: <laughs> the high water moment for American democracy it's all been downhill since then <laughs> yeah Steve Ford later said I feel sorry for Obama and the Bush girls they never got a chance to drag their stereos up to the roof to play the rapture <laughs> right. <laughs>
5: Or uh, Block Party. How many other, like, aughts-era blog rock bands can we cram into this? (laughs) Animal Collective. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages.
6: Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list.
5: There is one noted
4: enemy of this song, Jordan, and who is that? Lester Bangs. Of course. He was not a fan. I feel like you need to bring all your spite and bile into this section. You, please read this. Lester Bangs is a divisive figure. He's arguably, I mean, inarguably one of the
5: most famous rock critics. is such a huge influence on people, but he has said some hateful things. He described Stairway to Heaven as a thicket of misbegotten mush. Uh, which is so good. Uh, Yeah, I mean, the dude wrote. He wrote for sure. He was on Speed for his entire life and... (laughs) Cough syrup. Yeah, anyway. Rolling Stone, though, were apparently... uh, Who also famously were, like, not Zeppelin fans. They were pretty kind to the record as a whole. And much like Pitchfork, speaking of aughts-era blog rock, much like Pitchfork, Rolling Stone is famous for reversing course on on records that they panned back in the day. Um, But Lenny Kaye... you know, Patti Smith Group guitarist Lenny Kaye called Led Zeppelin IV the band's most consistently good album yet and praising the diversity of the song. Out of eight cuts, there isn't one that steps on another's toes that tries to do too much all at once. I would agree.
4: It's a great review. Yeah. Good job, Lenny Kaye. You got a future in this industry. <laughs> a less good review came from the British music magazine Sounds that said that Stairway induced quote, first boredom and then catatonia. Ouch. And so, of course...
5: We land back in court as every Led Zeppelin saga does. Stairway is famous for being one of the most examples of the backmasking controversy of the 1980s, in which various Christian talking heads posited that bands had hidden satanic messaging in their records that would reveal themselves when the songs were played backwards. And this is its own thorny thing, but the Reader's Digest version is that a Michigan minister named Mike Mills, say that five times fast, was the first to <laughs> pin the tag on Zeppelin on his radio show in 1981. But the movement really picks up steam in January 1982 on television when a televangelist named Paul Crouch claims on his show on the Trinity Broadcasting Network that playing the bustle in your hedgerow portion of Stairway Backwards reveals the hidden message. Wait for it. Here's to my sweet Satan the one whose little path would make me sad whose power is satan he will give those with him 666 there was a little tool shed where he made us suffer sad satan which sure i mean go on here's
4: to my sweet satan aside none of that makes any sense no
5: <laughs> makes no goddamn sense uh here's to my sweet satan is kind of a cool Record now, yeah. though. The whole thing gained steam to the point where later that year, lawmakers were actually introducing legislation to combat this trend. But
4: there's legislation against backmasking. There was, yeah, in
5: California. Wow. Uh, I yeah. Didn't know that. Or they attempted. I don't think it was actually passed, but it made it to the floor. And this is mostly based on the strength of one dude who is a self proclaimed neuroscientist who, as far as I can tell, is not an actual <laughs> scientist. <He's, laughs> you can't as, proclaim yourself a neuroscientist. Well, he was an army medic and he was uh, intensely okay. religious. And I think he participated in some scientific work while he was at university, but he does not have a doctorate. Uh, his name is William H. Yarrell II. Or the third? Why would you call yourself the second when you could just be junior? No, William H. Yarrell the second. God, what a tool.
4: Anyway, okay. <laughs> if you quibbling- about a numeral I'm, yeah it's fairly the forest minor for the trees when you proclaim there. yourself a neuroscientist
5: yeah. but so in the 33 and a third entry for four uh eric davis claims that some of these christian tv shows actually featured the top-down view of the host turntables so that viewers could actually watch them manipulate the records to spin backwards which is Why? this like it's sort of funny because then now Why? you think of like during the edm boom you'd see all those like top-down shots of like skrillex or whatever pressing play on his laptop so fun little analog there but this is interesting because as we've mentioned obliquely throughout this jimmy page was super into Aleister crowley
4: and there's who's Aleister crowley for those who who might not have uh read the uh, anarchist handbook in high school like
5: us uh alistair crowley is a famous occultist he had a bunch of pseudo mysticism writings he had a secret society called the golden order of the hermetic dawn and page was super into him he bought his old house Um, yeah and And like
4: Loch Ness or something
5: yeah yeah almost certainly haunted as well but in an early issue of a publication he had called the Equinox Crowley wrote that a novice musician should train himself to think backwards by external means and this is hilarious he pitches the methods how you can try and do this by learning to walk backwards which is dumb speak backwards (laughs) which is also dumb and dun 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 listening to records reversed. I love the idea though of Jimmy Page in this giant mansion strung out on heroin, wearing the dragon suit walking backwards through the hallways because <laughs> Alistair Crowley told him to. And you know, Led Zeppelin's record label had the mic drop on this whole issue where they just said, our turntables only play in one direction, forwards.
4: Well, speaking of moving forward, after John Bonham (laughs) died, the now ex-bandmates moved on to other projects, which are pretty much best left unmentioned. You don't have a thing for uh, Coverdale page, baby? The honey drippers? Yeah. No, we're, we're the firm. We're not going to we're, yeah. we're not gonna get any of that. So they kind of go their separate ways until 1985, when Bob Geldof was putting together Live Aid to raise money to combat the Ethiopian famine. And the surviving members of Led Zeppelin agreed to get together to play three songs on the Philadelphia stage at this event. Rock and roll, whole lot of love, and they're going to close out, of course, with Stairway to Heaven. And this is all for a good cause. It seems like a good idea, right? Wrong. Very, very <laughs> Very wrong. To fill John Bonham's woefully unfillable drum saddle, they tapped two men because, as we all know, John Bonham had the strength of two men. <laughs> For Stickman number one, they got Chic drummer Tony Thompson, who was playing with Power Station at the time. I love that actually. Right? It's incredible. It would be a great. They were thinking about touring, and I, fr- I th- honestly I think that this infamously bad gig kind of torpedoed that mm. whole idea of them going out on tour. Uh, well, the problem was he had an overbooked schedule. And And he only got to rehearse, I think, for something like two hours with the band Mm. before showtime. So Tony Thompson was drummer number one. They were also going to have drummer number two... Phil Collins. Now, I love this so much. So, Phil Collins, this is Live Aid. His big gimmick during Live Aid was that he performed his own set at Wembley. There are two stages of Live Aid, one at Wembley in England and one in Philadelphia. And his big thing was that he was going to play one set at Wembley in England, hop on a supersonic Concorde jet, and perform a second time that same day in Philadelphia with Led Zeppelin. And this sounds Cool, I mean, sort of cool, cool in theory, theoretically cool, Uh, but it meant that he got absolutely no time to prepare with Led Zeppelin at all, and he later admitted that his prep consisted of listening to Stairway to Heaven on, like, a Walkman on the flight over. Woof. Now, Phil Collins at the, I mean, what year is this, you said? 85. 85.
5: Okay, so Phil Collins' best years are behind him. Some of those early live Genesis records, like, I believe Phil Collins could have done that in his prime, but not
4: by 85. Well, I mean, the problem was that there was sort of a gross misreading of this situation, I would have to say, on Phil Collins' part. He later said in a 2014 interview with Q Magazine, I thought it was just going to be low-key. We'd all get together and have a play. (laughs) But... (laughs) But something happened between that conversation and the day, and it became a Led Zeppelin reunion. I turned up and was a square peg in a round hole. Robert Plant was happy to see me, but Jimmy wasn't. I could sense I wasn't welcome. Uh, He apparently arrived at the venue in Philadelphia, and he was greeted by Robert Plant, who said, and this is a quote, Jimmy Page is belligerent. (laughs) so he's led around to talk with Jimmy and Jimmy starts quizzing Phil about how stairway went. And Phil's just kind of air miming. drumming, air drumming, yeah, just a- air like air mm. drumming, how it goes. And <laughs> it's just like, I don't know. Maybe he picked up like a pencil or something and page is just shaking his head. Like, no, that's not how it goes. And he's, he's terrible. He's like, we're, we're doomed. This is all so, this is all so British. Well, I just thought we'd have a play. We'd ha- we'd have a play. Well, yeah. Well,
5: Jimmy's, Jimmy is quite belligerent with you.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Come on. I mean, uh, as... Jimmy would later say their set was, and this, these are his words, just appalling. I think Plant would call it an atrocity. They go out on stage and there's two minutes of dead air before they start to play because the roadies are running around trying to set up their monitors. And then Phil and Tony Thompson, the other drummer, were playing and they were just hopelessly out of sync with each other. Robert Plant was hoarse from playing a bunch of gigs recently. Jimmy Page's guitar was just going more and more out of tune, but... By every metric, this reunion was just a massive, I I mean, to be polite, a disappointment, to be frank, a disaster. And Paige has gone out of his way to blame Phil Collins for this. Every occasion over the years, like as recently as 2021, he did an interview with The Times and he was still slamming Phil. He said, the drummer, he didn't mention his name. <laughs> I can't tell if that's him trying to be diplomatic or him being even more demeaning. The drummer couldn't get the beginning of rock and roll. So we were in real trouble with that. <laughs> Classic <laughs> British still, understatement. Right. Right. And Phil has pointed the finger at the other drummer, Tony Thompson, saying, Tony was not making life easy, and if I could have walked off, I would have done. (laughs) Robert was not match fit with his voice, and Jimmy was out of it, dribbling. Ouch. It wasn't my fault. It was crap. Wow. (laughs) Tony died, I think, 20 years ago, so he's sadly not here to weigh in on this, but Phil has spoken about it so many times over the years. And I think my favorite is in 2020, he used this great British expression, I felt like a spare part on stage. Yeah. Ouch. But thankfully, there were at least some people who enjoyed the reunion. Apparently, Duran Duran <laughs> were watching the show in the wings and they they were so moved by the sight of three-fourths of Led Zeppelin playing Stairway that they actually started to cry. Aww. Duran Duran, oh, Yeah, I know. But Robert Plant had a great, typically pissy quote about that. He said, the whole idea of playing Stairway to Heaven with two drummers while Duran Duran cried on the side of the stage, there was something really quite surreal about that. Yeah, that's an understatement. Which, yeah, You know, we'd also be remiss in our
5: duties if we didn't talk about the Wayne's World bit. There's a part in that movie where in a guitar shop, Wayne goes to play Stairway to Heaven. He is stopped for playing it.
4: But uh, you have a deep dive into this, please. Yeah, there's a weird thing about that bit. In the versions of Wayne's World that I've seen, and probably you too, most people, Wayne plays like three random notes that sound absolutely nothing like Stairway. And in the original theater cut, he plays the actual first notes of the opening. And it was something like only three or four notes, but Led Zeppelin's very, very, very vigilant legal team told them that that was still too many notes and they could only use two notes from the original song before they owed them a hundred (laughs) grand. So for the home video release, they had to go back in, the director did, and edit more of the notes out. So that's why when you listen to it now, it's just like, why is he being stopped for playing a song that sounds nothing like Stairway? But this is hardly the Uh, only time Zeppelin and Hollywood clashed Yeah, Led Zeppelin also played hardball with another filmmaker, Cameron Crowe, which is pretty mean-spirited considering they go back decades when Cameron Crowe was... And
5: Cameron Crowe's just like the sweetest boy in
4: all of classic rock. Right, he profiled them when he was like a teenager working for Rolling Stone, so they go way back. And Crow had written Almost Famous, which is his semi-autobiographical take on, you know, himself in the 70s as a young up-and-coming writer. And he wrote this real pivotal scene in Almost Famous when the main character, who's a thinly disguised version of himself, is trying to convince his overprotective mother to let him go on tour with a band and cover it for Rolling Stone. So he gets his teacher to come over and to try to persuade his mother that rock and roll was literature, he plays all eight minutes of Stairway. And there's apparently an eight-minute scene of this but the band wouldn't let him use the song and cameron crowe was supposedly so heartbroken that he said he wouldn't have bothered to make the movie at all if he'd known that this scene wouldn't have been in the movie sweet boy i know and then god knows i feel like everyone of a certain generation that movie has been responsible for like trying to make people pursue careers in music journalism so think of, of how many dreams would have been dashed music period yeah oh totally Well, so we mentioned earlier that
5: Zeppelin were fans of Little Feet, but who did Jimmy Page cite as one of his favorite peers
4: to Cameron Crowe? Right. Yeah. During Cameron Crowe's profile of them, Jimmy Page said that there was one artist who might be capable of achieving the artistic excellence of Stairway to Heaven. And that one artist- Mungo Jerry. Was Joni Mitchell. (laughs) Okay. One of two artists, Mungo Jerry and Joni Mitchell- He specifically mentioned Joni Mitchell's song Both Sides Now, which is a solid choice, but an unexpected choice coming from. Uh, I love that. I one thing that
5: I got. I mean, I've been slagging Jimmy Page off a lot here, justifiably, I think. But he is such a fan of
4: music. Yeah. I mean,
5: he's never not like talk about a guy who just doesn't give a shit about anything. Else. Well, he money. He cares about money, but he re- yeah.
4: Well, one of the things money, occultism, and music, uh, dragons.
5: Yeah. And music, man. He just he loves. He talks about like the stuff that he loves. He talks about the stuff he grew up with. It's probably his biggest redeeming
4: quality and the guitar (laughs) to me anyway Uh, I love that scene in it might get loud when he plays rumble
5: yeah he just like puts
4: an old copy of rumble on his turntable and just talks about the light and the shadow and Uh, oh it's so great it's really endearing
5: Well, so we've talked a lot about what the architects of this song have said, but let's talk about what they've done to this song.
4: Yes. By the early 90s, Wayne's World really crystallizes this idea that uh, Stairway to Heaven represents the pinnacle of overplayed classic rock. And there was a radio station in Albuquerque, KLSK, that really took this notion that Stairway to Heaven's overplayed to a whole new level. This station had been a self-described New Age station, but they were switching to the classic rock format, which in the early 90s was really kind of a new idea. Uh, So to announce this radical shift, the station manager decided to pull this stunt where they would play Stairway to Heaven on repeat for 24 solid hours or something like 180 times. And this was... Nope. Yep, no. This was January 23rd, 1991. Now, this had mixed results because they got hundreds of angry calls and the police were dispatched to the station not (laughs) once, but twice. Uh, First, they showed up because they were worried that the DJ had had a heart attack and just, you know, his finger on the play button of stairway or something. Um, He he was fine. Freeze! Well, and then uh, the second time, another set of police arrived with their guns drawn because they thought that the DJ had been taken hostage, um, <laughs> which, which sounds insane. But this was just a few days after the start of the Gulf War. And there was concern that there might be some kind of terrorist activity in. That's the plot of Airheads. Right. So the police were dispatched twice. Uh, a lot of angry calls. But weirdly, a lot of people actually listened in purely to see <laughs> when it would finally stop. Is that Sisyphean or Kafkaesque? Uh, both. <laughs> so this it actually ended up having a good outcome for this radio station. They ended up becoming, I think, the second highest rated station in the market just purely because of the stunt. And this whole stunt was written up in the local newspaper the next day. Under the headline, guess what the headline is? 2 The song remains the same. Ah, Perfect. low-hanging fruit. No, but it's so good, though. So good. They should have called it When the Levee Breaks. Oh, uh, also good. That works on multiple levels. But uh, there was another radio stunt that Robert Plant himself got involved with, right? Yes.
5: So this is another famous part of Zeppelin lore. And I've seen and read a bunch of different versions of this. But the gist of the story is that Robert Plant is driving through Oregon. He's just played in Portland. And he's listening to the listeners supported by listeners like you. (laughs) Uh, Listener supported station KBOO or KBOO. Uh, when the DJ promises during the course of a a pledge drive to never play Stairway to Heaven again if people call him with donations. And again, the telling seems to fluctuate in this, but Robert Plant pulls over, calls the station, and pledges an amount of either $1,000 or $10,000, depending on who's telling this story. My favorite bit of this is that other versions of this story suggest that he used the Atlantic Records credit card for this. (laughs) <laughs> over the phone Or put the donation in the name Of Atlantic Records founder Ahmet Ertegun. And Plant has also claimed That Ahmet Ertigan then started Getting mail from the station As one of its donors and the best part about this is that it is true. KBOO has confirmed this story on Twitter. They didn't mention the amount, so we don't have a hard ruling on that. But they confirmed that Robert Plant actually pulled over to the side of the road and pledged money to a listener-supported station to get them to stop playing Stairway. And then this is a perfect segue into like a, a summation of things that Robert Plant has said about Stairway to Heaven. But on this specific story, he says at the end of a 2007 interview... He says, it's not that I don't like it. It's just that I've heard it before. He absolutely does like it. So So British. So British. Classic understatement.
4: I just want to offer a greatest hits reel of all the times that Robert Plant has publicly dissed his most famous creation. Please do. He's never really understood the fuss around Stairway, uh, which he's famously referred to as That Wedding Song. In an interview with Rolling Stone, he said, really, I have no idea why Stairway is so popular. No idea at all. He sees Kashmir as the pinnacle of the band's achievements, and I... Actually, kind of am inclined to agree with that. Ooh, hot take. He also intended to agree with many of the shots that contemporary critics took at the song, telling Q Magazine in 1988, if you absolutely hated Stairway to Heaven, no one can blame you for that because it was so pompous. (laughs) Since the death of John Bonham in 1980, I think you can count the number of times that he sung Stairway to Heaven on one hand. You've got Live Aid and then he performed the song under great duress at a tribute concert for the 40th anniversary of Atlantic Records in 1988, but he told the press after this concert, I'd break out into hives if I had to sing Stairway to Heaven at every show. I wrote the <laughs> lyrics and found the song to be of some importance and consequence in 1971, but 17 years later, I don't know. It's just not for me. I sang it at the Atlantic Records show because I'm an old softie, Aww. and it was my way of saying thank you to Atlantic because I've been with them for 20 years, but no more Stairway to Heaven for me. NTP pretty much meant it. They skipped it during the MTV Unplugged show, but then they did it, and this is something I'll never understand. The
0: MTV
5: Unplugged show, they did not invite John Paul Jones to, which remains a burning point of contention for me personally.
4: Why didn't they do that? Was it because they were doing the Page Plant
5: duo tour thing? Uh, Almost certainly in actuality, but I they have said something about it. I
4: mean, maybe it was they just didn't want it to be a Led Zeppelin reunion. I mean,
5: yeah. Well, according to... Forums.ledzeppelin.com, which is again total grain of salt but some of these are surprisingly accurate one of the main reasons for doing so he said was that people wouldn't think it was a zeppelin reunion and it probably also would have mm. t- taken money out of his cut but this is fascinating while they were reuniting to do this john paul jones is working with diamanda galay Galá, i don't know how to pronounce her name she's this truly truly breathtaking avant-garde vocalist everyone just google her version of i put a spell on you it is terrifying she is an incredible figure in avant-garde music and so it's just very funny to me that while they're recording for like a greatest hit set for mtv john paul jones is working with one of the most (laughs) batch wild incredible singers ever i love that good for john paul jones
4: (laughs) so yeah he's sung it Live 80s, sung at this Atlantic 40th anniversary show, skips it for MTV Unplugged, but for reasons that I I will never understand, Plant and Page performed an abbreviated acoustic version of Stairway to Heaven on a Japanese talk show in 1994 when they were promoting their Page and Plant project. According to legend, Plant lost a bet with Page, and that's the only reason that he ever sang it on that. It's got to be a bummer for Page because he said that the only person who can sing that song with him is Plant. So he really only gets to play it as an instrumental these days, which must be sad for him. Uh, the last time that Robert <laughs> Plant sang it publicly was at the Ahmet Erdogan tribute concert in 2007, uh, which became released as the was a Celebration Day live album and DVD. It's the big last show where they got Jason Bonham, John's son, to fill in on drums and <laughs> And um, I, I'm sorry.
5: Did you ever see that VH1 show Rock Band? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. Where he plays with Evan Seinfeld of Biohazard, Ted Nugent, uh, Scott Ian of Anthrax and Sebastian Bach of Skid Row. I'm sure Jason Baum is a very nice British boy, but just him getting grandfathered into Led Zeppelin because of who his dad is,
4: is baffling to me. Anyway, sorry, dude, sorry, Jason. You know who's a killer like son of a drummer who's also an amazing drummer? Zach Starkey. Zach Starkey, baby. Yep. Ringo's kid. Plays with the Who. Oh. He's played with the Who, I think, I mean, longer than Keith. Yeah, a lot longer oh, than yeah, Keith. Oh,
5: yeah, yeah. He does incredible, in, I would say better than Keith. A hot take.
4: So that was the last time, 2007, at the i Erdogan tribute show, that Plant uh, bustled his hedgerows, and <laughs> probably the last time. I I cannot imagine that we will be hearing him sing that anytime soon. But, you know, it's okay because there are some truly great other covers of Stairway to Heaven out there. Usually it's left alone by, like, the standard rock and roll crowd because they're kind of scared to go near such such a classic. So there are a lot of covers out there that are pretty different from the original, which is, you know, kind of a sign of a good cover, really. Dolly Parton covered Stairway on her 2002 album, Halos and Horns. And Robert Plant said he was actually a big fan of her version, because why wouldn't he be? She's Dolly Parton. Like, you have to be. Amen, yeah. Yeah. And also, I guess it kind of goes more with this, like, Alison Krauss vibe these days, too. I can see him being into kind of the more country version of it. And then, of course, there's Pat Boone, who famously watered down early rock hits from Fats Domino and Little Richard in the late 50s. He tackled Stairway as the closing track of his 1997 album In a Metal Mood, no more, Mister Nice Guy.
5: Famous record. Uh, he shows up at was it the Grammys or someone or American yeah. Music Awards some award show with Alice Cooper and he like walks on stage in a leather outfit. Alice Cooper introduces him as the future of heavy metal or something. <laughs>
4: I mean, yeah, th- this album in a metal mood, he's got covers of ACDC, Deep Purple, Van Halen, Dio, Metallica. And on the cover, I, someone probably told him that he looked metal. He's wearing, but he, he's kind of wearing like a leather gimp sex slave outfit. <laughs> Accurate. It doesn't look very metal at all. It looks more BDSM. Uh, and he got some bad advice. Or good advice. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. The only middle-of-the-road crooner doing a lounge version of a hard rock song that I recognize is Paul Anka doing Jump by Van Halen. Yeah, Google that. It's incredible. Incredible song. Uh, Mary J. Blige does a really incredible version of Stairway. She did it in 2010 with Steve Vai and Orianti on guitar. Was she uh, the woman who played with Michael Jackson? I don't know. I think so Um, Randy Jackson's on bass Hell yeah And Blink-182's Travis Barker on drums Which That's a lineup Uh, Um, I don't know how I feel about that It's interesting It's definitely worth a listen It was a bonus track On I think it was the UK reissue Of her 2009 album Stronger with each tear Travis is great But that man does not swing Anyway, no. moving on. What's the next one? There's a version that the London Symphony Orchestra did. There's a Gregorian chant version of Stairway. There's also an accordion-driven version of Stairway. Uh, there's a reggae tribute act called Dread Zeppelin. That is, I can't believe it took us this long to get to Dread Zeppelin. Good God. Right. What a scene against music. 90 minutes in, we finally got Dread Zeppelin in here. They actually released this as a single in 1991, got to number 62 in britain that is absurd to me i'm sorry
5: britain what the hell were you doing in 91 i mean uh, 1991 you should know better good god i'm I, <laughs> sorry i must not have read ahead to that
4: part because it just made me so furious <laughs> um and then there's i think probably my favorite led zeppelin cover band is a group called les zeppelin hell yes um, They are not only the best of all the Zeppelin cover bands, no offense to the ones that you were involved with, Heigl, (laughs) but they're also indirectly responsible for this hilarious incident in 2008. Uh, Les Zeppelin were due to play Bonnaroo. And the press release went out with Led Zeppelin on it. It was an all-female Led Zeppelin cover band. And numerous news outlets misread it as Led Zeppelin. And it had been less than a year since Led Zeppelin had done the Ahmed Erdogan tribute show. And there were all these rumors that they were going to reunite for a tour. So when this press release went out, numerous news outlets, including like the AP and like the Chicago Sun Times. So good outlets reported that Led Zeppelin were reunited. That's why copy and, editing is important, people. Fact right, check. Yeah. <laughs> and they had to offer these really sheepish retractions. Some defended the mistake. The Sun Times said the press release was misleading, to say the least. Unfortunately, I would probably have to say that Led Zeppelin ranked very high on the list of bands unlikely to ever reunite again. Yeah, no, not at all. Well, I think that's about all I have to say on this. I think maybe we give the final word to Paigey, shall we? Yeah. um, He says, to me, I thought Stairway crystallized the essence of the band,
5: which I would disagree with. It's not horny enough. (laughs) (laughs) To me, I thought Stairway crystallized the essence of the band. It had everything there and showed the band at its best as a band, as a unit. It was a milestone for us. Every musician wants to do something of lasting quality, something which will hold up for a long time, and I guess we did it with Stairway. Eh, I'm more of a who guy. You know, Jordan, there are two paths you can go by, but in the long run, (laughs) there's still time to change the road you're on.
4: (laughs) We'll see you next time for more Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. I'm Jordan Rontag. Thanks for joining us. Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl, with original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.